Greetings, this is J.R. Dickey. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And by the way, don't forget our website, graceandtruth.net. I hope you're having a great day, but if not, hang with me. It's about to get better. Today we're going to continue with the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 4. I call it The Consequence. Let's get started. Genesis begins. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Well, I find it interesting the Holy Spirit doesn't mention Adam and Eve having sexually intimate relations with each other until after they were driven out of paradise. Now, from the previous chapter, that's chapter 3, we can see that they didn't want to leave. They had to be driven out. But once they were out, that's when they started having children. This would indicate that their relationship, the closeness, the love they shared in Eden was not based upon sexual intimacy. We've already seen just how intense that love was and the decision it may have led Adam to make. And I think we would do well to take note of that today. Now, some might say, oh, come on. How could they walk around naked and not be concerned with sex? But remember, before the fall, they had no sin in natures to influence their thoughts. They probably had a very different outlook in this regard. With so much contemporary emphasis on the sexual relationships that we have, we must understand that sex, as wonderful as it is, is not the essence or basis of love. It's also neat to realize that paradise and the presence of God was so beautiful, so fulfilling. Imagine taking daily walks with the Lord that they apparently just didn't need to emphasize their own sexual relationship. Who knows? But now God said, be fruitful and multiply. So we know it's a glorious part of his plan, but it just doesn't seem to have been a notable factor in the couple's relationship while in Eden. And as such, it is a type, would you say a foreshadowing, of the true paradise for heaven will probably be much the same way. Check out Mark chapter 12, 18 through 25. The name Cain means to acquire or possess and can imply a thought like, here it is. I've got him. One reason that's relevant is because they had just gone from a situation where they needed nothing to a situation where they needed everything. And one of the most difficult things for parents to handle is that our kids are not our possessions. They belong to the Lord. They're on loan to us, so to speak. Now, in this sinful, insecure world, one of the most dear things we can know is the unconditional love of a child. Most of us would not trade it for anything. Nevertheless, it's not something to be possessed, to own, but rather it's something to nurture, enjoy, and share. Many excellent Bible scholars also say that this name indicates Eve may have thought Cain was the fulfillment of what God promised in Genesis 3.15, that is, the Messiah. Now, if that was the case, 
What an incredible trial it must have been for these two parents to see the one who they'd thought to be God's fulfillment, his Messiah, turn out to be a killer. But that's exactly what will happen during the last years of this present age, when the Jewish people, and indeed the whole world, will look to a man the Bible calls the Antichrist, and they will think he is the Messiah. He will turn out, however, to be the son of the devil and a fiendish destroyer. Well, Genesis goes on. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, the name Abel means breath or nothing. Perhaps by comparison to Cain in stature or cleverness, he was nothing to write home about. Well, perhaps there was more relationship between Adam and Cain than with Adam and Abel. We note that it was Cain who followed in his dad's footsteps, so to speak, in becoming a tiller of the ground. As we will see soon, Cain's efforts to please God represent the essence of vain religion, whereas Abel's approach is a picture or type, a foreshadowing of those with a true relationship with God, that is, one based on faith. And at this point, we should mention that Eve, who can be seen to symbolize all believers, remember her name means life, gave birth to both. Genesis goes on. And in the process of time, or literally at the end of the days, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, neither offering was, in and of itself, good or bad. Some say that Abel's offering was acceptable because it was a picture of the Lamb of God, Christ. And I believe that is so. But we must remember that these weren't sin offerings, per se. The law had not been given yet. And even when it was, a grain offering was also specified. Take a look at Leviticus chapter 2. So why was one offering acceptable to God and the other not? Well, the writer of Hebrews answers this when he says, By faith Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead yet speaks. That's Hebrews 11.4. God knew the heart of these two. Abel offered a sacrifice of faith. And we know that, quote, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's Romans ten seventeen. So they obviously had gotten the word, offer this bloody sacrifice. And Abel believed it, that that would please God. It is only through faith in God, in his word, that speaks of his own bloody sacrifice, Jesus Christ. That one is made righteous. Cain, on the other hand, decided to do it his own way. 
he decided to impress God with his own works. And this pictures the insistence of those who work to earn their salvation, rather than obey God and come to his saving grace in humble faith. In fact, at the end of the days, that's just what that passage said, that is the last days or the time known in the scripture as the great tribulation and the time of Jacob's trouble, that's our own last days, we will see again the satanic force of false religion raise its hand against the true believers. And there'll be more on that later on. Cain's vain religion, like all false religions, is based on three things. Human schemes, human sacrifice, and human satisfaction. He probably had reason to approach God in this way because God had instructed Adam to be a tiller of the ground. But this command or preceding law, if you would, from the Lord for work was adjusted when it came to acceptable worship. You could say that Abel got it, whereas Cain continued vainly in following the former or old rules. True religion, on the contrary, is based upon simply the Word of God, the work of Jesus Christ, and the witness of His Holy Spirit. Now, the Hebrew word for respect, as in the Lord did respect Abel, but did not respect Cain, here means literally to gaze at, to inspect, or to consider. And so it appears that God would not give his attention to what Cain brought. Oh boy, nothing will anger a religious person quicker than to tell him that all his religious good works, apart from faith, are worthless in earning God's respect. Genesis goes on, And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Cain's religious piety was indeed a sham. Speaking of shams, Kent Hughes tells a story. I like it. A number of years ago, when I was a youth pastor, word came to me from one of the large churches in my area that the last living member of the Bonnie and Clyde gang, Big Jim Harrington, had been giving his testimony to standing-room-only crowds with amazing results. So I made the arrangements for him to come to speak at our church. I arranged for special music. I had several thousand handbills printed and distributed at the local high schools and enlisted counselors. Well, the night arrived, and it went beyond our expectations. A sea of teenagers. Well, Big Jim was unbelievable. An imposing man, about 80 years old, with tats on the back of his hands and an indentation atop his bald head from an old bullet wound. For two hours, he regaled us with powerful stories of his wasted life with Clyde Barrow. He poignantly exhorted us not to waste our youth and urged us to commit our lives to Christ. Everyone was thrilled. The elders who had been reticent congratulated us on the service. I was very satisfied and, and a little smug until two days later when I received a call from Big Jim's agent who told me he had just learned that Big Jim was an imposter. 
that in fact he was a well-meaning alcoholic who lived with his daughter out in the desert and suffered delusions about his uneventful past. Gulp. Thank you, Kent. At this point, a darkness overtook Cain. His face fell, and the ugliness of his self-righteous heart attitude was exposed. Genesis goes on. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. In the original language, the picture here is of sin like a praying lion, crouching, ready to pounce upon its victim. Nevertheless, God says, but you should rule over it. And the emphasis is rightly placed upon should. For Cain, along with all who have not been born again in Christ, lack the freedom from sin's mastery. You know, the word tells us from Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And from John 8.34, Jesus answered, Then most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. The good news is that when we are born again by the Spirit, through Christ, that is, faith in Christ, we are free not to sin. Of course, we can still choose to sin, but we're no longer slaves to it. If Cain had only talked with God and confessed his sin, but instead, Genesis goes on, Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. You see, Cain's sin here began with his anger, and he simply acted it out to its natural conclusion. That's why Jesus said, when you're angry with your brother, look out. Check out Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Genesis goes on. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? Again, the Lord offered an opportunity to Cain for repentance, but he was absolutely without remorse. Genesis goes on. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Keeper means to put a hedge about, to protect. Cain revealed the true ugliness of his heart in this saying. Not only did he premeditate and carry out this murder, but his conscience was seared with hatred. The famous French philosopher Voltaire, who cursed Christ and boasted, In twenty years Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took twelve apostles to rear. When he died, he cried out in desperation, I am abandoned by God and man. I give you half of what I am worth if you give me six months to live. Then I shall go to hell, and you will go with me, O Christ, O Jesus Christ. Hmm. In contrast, the moment of death also sometimes reveals spiritual beauty. John Wesley died full of counsel 
exhortations, and praise for God. His final words were, the best of all is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. Farewell. Jonathan Edwards, dying from smallpox, gave some final directions, bid his daughter goodbye, and expired, saying, Where is Jesus, my never-failing friend? What a difference in attitude. Now, may the Lord grant you peace in the midst of any storm and faith to trust him. Look for our next podcast, and may you realize more of his grace today.